from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at The Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 14th. Today, a deadline for the war in Afghanistan, Biden's vision for the future of infrastructure, and how Native communities are tackling vaccinations. I'm speaking to you today from the Roosevelt, the treaty room in the White House, the same spot where on October of 2001, President George W. Bush informed our nation that the United States military had begun strikes on terrorist training camps in Afghanistan. Today, President Biden announced that he will be bringing all U.S. troops home from Afghanistan by September 2021. Missy Ryan covers the military for The Post. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. President Biden today talked about his responsibility as the fourth president who's overseeing the war in Afghanistan to bring this conflict to an end, saying that it's time and that the United States achieved its central goals in Afghanistan. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, with our military leaders and intelligence personnel, with our diplomats, and our development experts, with the Congress and the Vice President, as well as with Mr. Ghani and many others around the world, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. While President Biden said the United States would continue to support the peace process in Afghanistan, he underscored the fact that he believes it's time for the United States to turn towards other challenges that it's facing in the world. How many troops are actually still in Afghanistan now? It's actually the lowest level it's been since very early in the war following the 9-11 attacks. The troop level currently stands at between 2,500 and 3,500. And just to give a point of comparison, it was around 100,000 during President Obama's surge in 2011. So these last remaining troops on the ground there, what are they actually doing? The military mission right now is basically in support of the Afghan security forces who remain locked in a very fierce battle with the Taliban. If you recall, the Taliban's military power has sort of ebbed and flowed over these two decades, but they are very powerful right now. And they, in many parts of Afghanistan, have seized wide parts of the countryside. They've surrounded certain cities and towns. And and what American troops have been doing is trying to support their effort to ensure that the Taliban doesn't surge into populated centers. So then why is President Biden making this big announcement now? Why does he think that now is the time to get troops out of there? Well, President Biden has been facing a May 1 deadline for a full withdrawal from Afghanistan under a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban in 2020. So President Biden coming into office in January of 2021, had this three-month period to decide what to do with in Afghanistan. Was he going to pull out all remaining troops 
by the deadline that was specified in the deal, which the deal is supposed to sort of catalyze a peace process and hopefully lead to a political settlement in Afghanistan. So was President Biden going to fulfill that deal or was he going to keep troops there longer? And what he has decided to do is actually pull out all remaining troops, but he's just going to do it about four months late. And that's because, you know, they said that they needed some time to consider that it would have been too rushed to do this. But it really is a striking moment uh, where we can really see what his administration's priorities are in terms of foreign policy. They seem very determined to pivot away from these counterinsurgent wars that dominated the two decades after 9-11. And they want to free up the resources, the military power, the sort of bureaucratic bandwidth to focus on other challenges that they say are more important, including China, competition with Russia, climate change, and global health. And so they say that's why it's necessary to get out of Afghanistan. But at the same time, other presidents have also said that they wanted to get out of Afghanistan. President Obama, President Trump, they both failed to actually get to a point of complete withdrawal. So how real is this new September 11th deadline? Yeah, I mean, for those of us who have been covering Afghanistan for many years now, it's also it's at once a familiar and new kind of moment. It feels both familiar and new because, you know, we've had now uh, three presidents who have promised to get out of Afghanistan you know, since President Obama took office in 2009, and they haven't done so. Uh, President Obama and President Trump did not do so. But what I think is going to happen now is you have a decision that is relatively short term. As I said, you've already got a very low troop presence. And what was important yesterday was that the administration officials who were talking about President Biden's decision were very clear in saying that this is not a conditions-based decision, meaning that they are not going to rely on the conditions on the ground. It's not going to be dependent on the security situation. It's not going to be dependent on these peace talks that are sort of sputtering around outside of Afghanistan, they are going to do this no matter what. But then what does that mean for Afghan people? If they're basically saying, we don't really care what the situation is on the ground, we're getting out of there come hell or high water. That's why I think this is an interesting decision because it shows us what the trade-offs are that the Biden administration is willing to make in pursuit of this sort of foreign policy pivot that I described earlier, they are willing to take a risk in terms of, you know, what the critics would say is jeopardizing the progress that has been made in Afghanistan over the last decades in terms of health and education and women's rights. And then, of course, the risk that the Taliban could take over the country again. So the decision to pull out all remaining troops really shows us that they're willing to risk those kind of uh, reversals in order to advance towards their larger foreign policy goals. And I'm wondering what the reaction has been among people in Afghanistan. And I'm sure that depends a lot on whether you're talking to someone from the Taliban, someone from the Afghan government, regular people in different parts of the country that probably feel differently about this. But what is your sense of what they see as the outlook here in a world without any American troop presence in their country? I think there's a lot of anxiety from regular Afghans. You've already seen over the last 10 years a lot of flight of Afghans who are you know, trying to move to Europe to get away from violence, to, in some cases, look for better job opportunities. But there is a sense that because the Taliban 
remains unchanged in many ways that they, you know, have voiced an opposition to embrace democratic elections. They have, it's unclear whether they will really support the kind of women's rights that have materialized in Afghanistan in the last two decades. There are a lot of concerns that the the life that Afghans have or that they aspire to will not be possible in a situation where you have a government that either includes or is dominated by the Taliban. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a really interesting moment because the United States has been for two decades, not just invested militarily, but diplomatically in terms of foreign assistance. And, uh, Uh, While the Biden administration is saying that the economic and the diplomatic support will continue, you have to wonder to what extent they're going to be able to do that and what that will mean for ordinary Afghans. And what is the reaction that President Biden's announcement is getting from lawmakers and politicians here in the states? You know, it's been mixed. It's it's largely along party lines, but there are certainly some exceptions to that. Mostly Democrats are applauding him, saying that, you know, we did we were there for a long time. We tried, and there's no reason to think that the troop presence was going to guarantee a peace deal, which is what some people had hoped for. And then the Republicans, including you know Mitch McConnell, are saying that it's premature, that it will jeopardize not just the, the interests of Afghans, but the interests of the United States in terms of potentially permitting Afghanistan to become a safe haven for terrorism again. The administration has decided to abandon U.S. efforts in Afghanistan which have helped keep radical Islamic terrorism in check. And bizarrely, they've decided to do so by September the 11th. Apparently, we're to help our adversaries ring in the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks by gift wrapping the country and handing it right back to them. Our president should remember what happened when the Obama administration let political considerations rush a retreat from Iraq total chaos and bloodshed and ISIS. You have to remember that this is now a conflict that is sort of interwoven with, you know, Americans' lives. You have two decades of, of service members who have served there. And, you know, it, it plays out in complicated ways. But if the United States really does follow through with Biden's promise to get out entirely. I do think that no matter what, it's going to be the end of an era and potentially an inflection point for our engagement with the rest of the world. Because would this troop withdrawal represent in some ways like a failure of this whole mission? I mean, if there's just this sort of acknowledgement at this point that, look, we tried and we didn't get everything we want and the Taliban is still there and a lot of things have remained unchanged, but we just have to wash our hands of this. I mean, what does that say about the lives that were lost and the money that was spent and the political and, and international capital that was spent on this mission over the last two decades? Well, the White House is trying to point people's attention to the fact that the U.S. did achieve basically its two primary goals in going into Afghanistan after 9-11, and that was responding to the September 11th attacks and also preventing another attack from Afghanistan on the U.S. homeland. So they're they're trying to emphasize that. But on the other hand, nobody is going to argue that this is a victory. Nobody is going to say that the situation in Afghanistan is what anybody would have wanted in 2001 or 2011 or 2020. The government is incredibly fragile. The Taliban is very powerful. 
and the prospects for peace are very dubious. Missy Ryan covers the military for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Muhammad. Right at the end of March, the Biden administration announced a proposal for a $2 trillion infrastructure package. Ian Duncan covers transportation for The Post. That includes money for all kinds of things that would be built, like roads and bridges, transit networks. The American Jobs Plan will modernize 20,000 miles of highways, roads, and main streets that are in difficult, difficult shape right now. Electrification of uh, transportation system, electric cars and buses, uh, but also broadband, water, money for housing. I think broadband is infrastructure. It's not just roads, bridges, highways, etc. And then things that you might not necessarily think of as infrastructure in terms of their bill, but that the administration is including here. So that's like long-term care for the elderly and for disabled people. Think of expanded vital services like programs for seniors. Or think of home care workers going into homes of seniors and people with disabilities, cooking meals, helping them get around their homes, and helping them be able to live more independently. All of this sort of rounded up into a big package that the administration calls the American Jobs Plan to sort of reshape the economy and expand the federal government's role in helping people get work. And I want you to tell me a little bit about what is actually in here that would change the way that Americans like experience roads and transportation and the stuff that we traditionally think of when we think of infrastructure. So there is about like $600 billion in there that's sort of for transportation. There's a couple of big chunks. There's $115 billion of that is for repairing roads and bridges. That sort of stuff that, you know, you might not necessarily sort of recognize the benefits of, but it's really would be fixing up what sort of undergirds everything that helps us get around. And then there's $174 billion in there, which is for electrification. So some of that is sort of built infrastructure in terms of charging, but a lot of that would be incentives for regular consumers to buy electric cars and for transportation agencies to buy electric buses. So that's something that probably would be a little bit more transformational. It would potentially spur people to get electric cars who didn't have them before, and it could do quite a lot to sort of change the nation's bus fleets. Two pieces in there that I think maybe really stand out are 80 billion for transit and about the same amount for rail. And that represents like a really big expansion of what the federal government would do to support trains and buses, especially on the rail side where the federal government hasn't really had too big of a role. And that's something that's pretty important to the administration because they think that they need to get more people to take buses, take subways, take the train rather than fly if they want to kind of meet their climate goals over the long term. So there's quite a bit in there that they're sort of proposing that would potentially change the way people get around day to day. And if this bill were to magically pass exactly the way that President Biden has conceived of it, 
How would it change what our country looks like and our day-to-day experiences? Like, paint a picture of what all this actual infrastructure funding would do and how it could sort of revolutionize what we see in around us in the world. So I think it would make people more likely to be driving an electric car certainly sooner than they otherwise might. They're talking about making that sort of financially quite attractive to people. And that's sort of still driving, but it's a shift in it's a big important environmental shift and it's something that would require people to go out and shop for a car and you know, get a charger at home and just sort of changed their relationship with their car a little bit. And that then starts to sort of fold into some ideas that the administration has about just sort of reshaping what roads look like and who they're for. Right now, we basically design roads with the idea of let's move cars through as quickly and as efficiently as we can. And that kind of proves to be quite dangerous for people who aren't in cars. Um, And so you then start to sort of think about like the physical infrastructure that supports transit because that usually means walking at least part of the way and cycling too, which is just obviously moving slower in a more vulnerable way, but still using the road. So what do you think the funding that is being suggested for these different huge projects, what do you think it says about the Biden administration's priorities or how they think about the problems that are facing this country right now? I think a big difference that you see from the previous administration is that climate is clearly a focus and then sort of Racial equity, too, is the other big piece that is new. There's sort of ways in which these things overlap and sort of safety maybe is another sort of core piece of this overlaps. Buses tend to be used by people who are less well off or more likely to be people of colour. And so if you can improve bus service, you're potentially doing something positive for the environment, but you're also helping people in some of the most vulnerable communities have better access to jobs or the places that they want to go. So Ian, as you know, I also used to be a transportation reporter. And I remember the day after President Trump was elected and calling up all these local members of Congress, many of them Democrats, to ask them about their reaction to Trump being elected. And many of them were sad and frustrated and mad, but they were all thinking about infrastructure at the same time, right? Like they had this idea of, well, you know, this is the one thing that maybe we actually can agree with President Trump on infrastructure. And maybe that's the one area where we can start to strike a bargain, except that didn't really happen. And even though we think about infrastructure is this like bipartisan issue that everybody wants nice roads and bridges and to be able to get around easily, that it might not be as bipartisan as we think it is anymore. And so I'm wondering, what is your sense of whether or not this is really something that Republicans are excited about working with Biden and and Democrats on? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is um, where you really get into where what the current administration and what a lot of Democrats in Congress want is quite new and quite different. And so there was this sort of bipartisan consensus for a policy that is basically focused on roads and bridges and does a little bit for transit, but that, that that's not a big piece of it. And that that has been the kind of status quo that has reigned for quite a long time. And what you're seeing is really Democrats now are interested in climate change and transportation is the biggest sector in terms of production of greenhouse gases. So it's one that you really have to address. And that's just something that I think Republicans aren't 
as interested in or don't think ought to be as big of a focus in infrastructure policy. And so you saw last year when Democrats now controlling the House, they put forward their infrastructure bill then and it would have done quite a lot to sort of overhaul policies um, Peter DeFazio, he's the chairman of the Transportation Committee in the House, talks about we've got to move on from sort of the Eisenhower 1950s legacy. And that's not something that Republicans are totally on board with. And so that bill was just really partisan and, and didn't move forward. And so, you know, it serves the interests of the White House to try and argue that things are bipartisan. Um, but when you actually see what happens in Congress, it's it's pretty clear that there is a divide between the parties on this. And then there's also the issue of the fact that this infrastructure bill has a lot of stuff in it that I don't think we particularly think of as infrastructure, right? Like it's not related to transportation or the built world or telecommunications or anything like that. Like there are aspects to this that people think don't belong there. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what else is in this bill? So yeah, there's lots of money in there for, you know, the care economy, which is not a built thing in any way. And then there's other categories that sort of deal with transportation, but it's sort of not the built part of it either, right? So the subsidies for electric vehicles, that's not obviously infrastructure and sort of shows how the administration with this plan is trying to address all kinds of things. Like they're not just narrowly focused on concrete and rail and steel, things that go into the ground. Like they're trying to use this to advance a number of different parts of their agenda that maybe there's some overlap in some of them and maybe there's less overlap in others of them. So then what's going to happen if Democrats see this as like the one, and not to he's the transportation metaphor, but the one train that's leaving the station of legislation that they just want to pack as many things onto as possible. But then you have Republicans who are like, 99.9% of this we actually don't agree with and we don't think that this belongs here and we don't, it doesn't align with our policy priorities, then is this bill actually going to happen? I mean, is there a path toward negotiation here or is it sort of dead on arrival? So, I mean, we saw this week that President Biden invited Republicans into the White House with some Democrats to try and talk this over. They've had bipartisan meetings um, recently before they unveiled the, the package too. And the White House says, like, look, like we're not trying to waste the president's time. Like, this is a serious effort to get, you know, bipartisan support. I guess that will become clearer whether the White House is willing to sort of jettison things from this package or change things or change the way that they're proposing to, to pay for it or whether they say, well, we'll do these talks, but we're really going to ask Congress to advance the package in pretty much the, the form that we've outlined it in. Ian Duncan covers transportation for The Post. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. And now, one more thing from reporter Dana Hedgepeth. I'm Native American. I'm a member of the Halawasaponi tribe of North Carolina. It's the second largest tribe in North Carolina. Dana has been writing about the smallpox vaccinations of Native American communities in the 1830s and how that history still resonates in today's pandemic. So I wanted to take a look at vaccinations and the history of vaccinations for Native Americans. And unfortunately, 
it's not a good one. Sadly, there was a policy of smallpox vaccine when it was implemented for Native Americans, whereas on the surface, it was supposedly to vaccinate Native Americans. In reality, it was meant as basically a process of removing Native Americans from their homelands. So they were essentially promised, get this vaccine and, oh, by the way, also move off your land as you head west. We all know there was a huge policy of removing Native Americans from their land in the 1800s. So the vaccine was seen as a, quote, health issue. But in reality, it had a sad backstory of taking more land from Native Americans. Almost 200 years later, this history still affects how much Native American communities can trust the medical establishment. And some of these stories of medical malpractices and mistreatment and distrust aren't that long ago. You don't have to go back, you know, several centuries. There's cases of women being wrongly sterilized in the 19th, 20th centuries uh, on reservations. So it's not that long ago. In one of my stories about vaccines and the flu, I looked in detail and talked to a lot of medical experts and Native American doctors who work on reservations about the message that Dr. Fauci first put out there saying the Calvary is coming. A few days ago that we have a, a really quite effective vaccine getting ready to deploy is rather than, hey, don't worry, you're okay. It's that don't stop shooting. The cavalry is coming, but don't put your weapons down. You better keep fighting. because Cavalry are known to have killed thousands, millions of Native Americans. So that is a hard message to overcome for both young and old. So it presented a real problem for a lot of tribal leaders to try to overcome that. Tribes, to their credit, took that and spun it. Navajos had a town hall with Dr. Fauci, a virtual town hall, where they let people directly ask questions of him. And Dr. Anthony Fauci, we appreciate you accepting our invitation to speak at our town hall meeting and the great Navajo Nation and our membership will be listening to you this Other day. tribes, including Navajo, Cherokees, Osages, my own tribe, Halawasaponi, got their own tribal leaders and chiefs and council members to be seen taking the vaccine. That's very effective when you see someone who you know, who's trusted in your community, taking the vaccine, talking about the vaccine, bringing in their great aunt, their great uncle, who's, you know, 85 years old, taking the vaccine. Those things are effective. A lot of tribes put in place these committees, basically like a, their own public health committees that review, research, and approve before any research can be done of kids or adults on any kind of a you know, experimental drugs or studies or medical-related tests. So they basically created their own, in a way, mini NIHs, if you think about it. And it started way back in, in April, this time last year, when the pandemic was starting, with conveying to council the importance of all of our public health measures and why we were doing public health measures. That is Dr. Dakota Lane. He's the medical director of a clinic for the Lumi Nation, a Native American tribe in Washington state. He helped bring together tribal leaders to encourage the community to participate in vaccine trials and to take the vaccine. What that really did was jumpstart the discussion within the community, both about vaccines and then also about the historical trauma that our, our community has, has faced. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I heard from elders because it involved me calling them and doing a lot of groundwork. It, this was an entire community-wide push uh, from the health leaders to the political leadership to our elders. 
even the Lumination, before they agreed to do any trials or vaccines, they put all the vaccines through their own review board. So that way, people in the community then know, okay, this has been a reviewed, approved, and okayed by locals, many of whom are medical professionals, but that gives them a sense of confidence. So that brings people to the table for getting a shot. Native Americans in this last year plus of the pandemic had twice to three times the infection rate of non-whites. So sadly, we've lost a lot of Native people, including tribal elders who knew the culture, the customs, they knew the language, huge loss of language, Native language speakers. The good news is the vaccination rates are going very well. There have been a lot of tribal elders and young people in their 20s and 30s who have been accepting of the vaccine shots and have got them. Again, that's come from the hard work of tribal leaders spreading the word of mouth, showing and leading by example by getting the vaccine themselves first. So they are ahead of the game in terms of the overall U.S. non-Native population. There's been a couple stories where tribes have done so well that they actually have extra vaccines and they're offering them to non-Natives in certain communities, not across the board, just certain communities. Again, a lot of people, sadly, lost their lives. But in spite of that, tribal communities have come to the rescue of their people. They've taken care of their own. They really have in unbelievable circumstances. Dana Hedgepeth is a reporter on the Metro Desk. Sabi Robinson produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>